This is an Eva Burrows College podcast. The content covered here is intended for students enrolled in Eva Burrows College courses and is part of a larger learning context. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, I'm John O'Dorse, trainer and assessor at Eva Burrows College. I'm really excited to welcome Noel Duffin to share on the podcast today. Noel is an assistant regional manager at the Salvation Army Money Care Service. He's also an experienced financial counsellor, all-round financial guru, and an avid golfer. Having worked with Noel for a number of years at Moneycare, I can tell you that he lives and breathes golf. Today, however, Noel is here to share some of his considerable wisdom around the topic of individual advocacy. Part of a suite of resources we're putting together for our financial counselling students with a spotlight on advocacy. So welcome, Noel. I'd love you to start by explaining your current role and how long you've worked in the financial counselling sector. I've been in my current role um, for the last five and a half years and uh, I work for uh, the Salvation Army um, in New South Wales. It's a bit of a split role. I spent half my week uh, my own financial counselling practice in the Mid-North Coast and the rest of the week I I look after about six financial counsellors that are spread um, across the state. Um, I've been working in the sector now since uh, I first started working in 2009. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you became a financial counsellor and what attracted you to the sector? I've spent the majority of my working life in the financial services sector and I've been lucky during that time to work in numerous roles, um, which has given me a, a broad range um, of skills. And I first became aware of the financial counselling sector back in in 2000 while I was dealing with a financial counsellor. And um, when the opportunity arose in 2006, I made a move from the the city to the country. And um, what attracted me to the role was that I I felt I could use the skills that that I had uh, gathered over a period in time and um, put them to good use. Um, and to be able to um, add value to the clients that I dealt with. Many people have a real passion for working in this sector. I'm wondering, Noel, what what do you find most rewarding about this role? The most rewarding thing for me is that I'm able to help people. I can add value uh, by having a conversation with them around the financials. And... From that, you get instant feedback because you can see the stress ease from their face and they are more relaxed. They, they feel less alone now, now that they've shared their secret. Um, on the longer term, in working in, in a small country community, I, I, I see my clients Every, every day of the week, I see clients who've made fundamental changes to their lives over the years and turn things around. That's what I find uh, most rewarding. As you know, we're shining a spotlight on the topic of advocacy. I'm wondering how you would explain the difference between individual advocacy and systemic advocacy. And also, what role does the financial counselling sector play in regards to both of those types? Individual advocacy to me is uh, when you're working with an individual client, providing them with advice, and in some instances, you may advocate on their behalf around their financial issues. 
With systemic advocacy, we're looking at what's happening in our industry. Um, and we can do that at a very early stage by identifying specific scams, for example, or products that are causing um, people a lot of stress. I think the financial counselors are in a perfect uh, position because they are at the cold face and they can see specific trends developing. Um, as an organization, we're quite proactive on that and we provide um, constant feedback uh, to our state bodies and uh, to Financial Counseling Australia, our peak body. Clients sometimes think that as financial counselors, uh, you have magical powers to achieve results. I guess, firstly, is that true? Uh, and why is it that financial counselors can at times achieve better outcomes than the client? Clients are very grateful for the results uh, we achieve, but uh, I can tell you we have no magical powers. I think we achieve better outcomes from clients and I can put it down to two things. One is that we have direct line access to the specific team that can help us. And if you look at a client ringing a call center, they have to make 10 decisions before they get to the, to the, to the proper team. And the second thing um, is that we speak the language. You know, financial counseling and the banking sector, there's a lot of technical jargon that we, that we throw around all the time. And we can talk the language, we understand the process. Um, and for the client, it can be all consuming and just too difficult to, to maneuver. Because it's so difficult to deal with financial um, institutions, a lot of clients just don't deal with it, leave it, and leave it until it becomes uh, a critical matter then. And that's usually when we become involved. Financial counsellors seek to empower their clients with the phrase, don't do for a client what they can do for themselves, one that's often used. I'm wondering, how do you decide when to advocate on a client's behalf and when to support the client to advocate themselves? And further to that, Noel, when you do advocate, how do you ensure that you are still empowering the client and building on their existing strengths? That probably depends on, on a number of factors. One would be the, the urgency of uh, the case as well. And, and what's involved. So take, for example, if there was a property involved and if it was at a critical state, then I'd get involved at a very early stage. But when, you, when do you normally decide? Well, you assess the situation um, the first couple of times you, you, you see your client and you establish what else is happening and what their capacity is for them to advocate on their own and when I advocate I ensure that the, the client one that we have a plan in place and, and and two we before we advocate we agree on on what the strategy is and in every step on that process I get my clients input and sign off and, and an example of that would be if I'm writing a letter to a financial institution, I'll give it to the client to review first to make sure he's happy with the content or 
if he has any other suggestions of what we do. So I involve the client in every step of the process, even though I might be doing the end step, which is advocating on his behalf. I'd love you to share an example of this uh, in practice. What does it look like in striking that balance between advocacy and empowerment? I, I saw a client uh, a couple of months back and he had, um, I think, three or four creditors at the time. Wasn't comfortable at all about um, advocating himself. And um, the approach that I used was the first couple of sessions, we did a complete fact find, went through his options, and then we agreed on an approach with the creditors. So when it came to time to have a conversation with the first creditor, um, I, I did it by phone and I made sure my client was there as well. So we had a three-way conversation with the creditor uh, and the creditor was aware that my client was there. But during this process, he just listened in and he got familiar with the process. And I repeated that with the second creditor. So eventually my client was able to um, take over and deal effectively with the last creditor. So, so therefore, it was a gentle way of uh, empowering and up- upskilling uh, my client on, on how to deal with creditors. Noel, I'm wondering what tools a financial counsellor might use in advocating on behalf of a client. And I use the term tools quite broadly. I guess what pieces of information um, would you need to have before you start advocating? And is there a step-by-step process that you follow? Great question, Jono. Um, regarding pieces of information, and I'm probably stating the obvious, but I don't advocate until I have all the information. Now, human nature is when you see a client and you want to help straight away. Um, in the past, I have acted too quickly. So one of the key things is do a complete fact find. Get all the information. Now, it may take you one, two or three sessions, but wait until you have all the information before getting your proposal together to advocate on the client. If I'm advocating on behalf of a client, the first step is that I'll send the authority form off to the creditor. And in my email to the creditor, I'll let them know that um, I'll be contacting within 14 days usually. That's the process. So I worked out a strategy with the client. I'm, I'm writing to the creditor with a proposal. So in my letter, I outline what has happened, what was the situation, what has occurred, and what is our proposal. And with my letter, I provide supporting information, such as a completed budget, a statement of financial position, and usually proof of income. And take, for example, if my client is in financial hardship because of illness or injury, I usually uh, attach a medical certificate as well. The next step in the process is that the creditor will uh, contact you, and that's usually by, by phone, and that's where, in 99% of the cases, a decision will be made.
I always ask the creditor to uh, put that decision in writing to us, outlining the commencement of the arrangement and what are the conditions of the arrangement so I have proof. Once this issue is resolved, um, then I will ask for my authority to be revoked. So from there on in, the creditor will, will deal directly uh, with my client. Advocacy obviously requires communication with lenders, debt collectors um, and other third parties. Now, what procedures do you follow in doing this? And do you have any tips uh, for effective communication with these third parties? The practice guidelines determines the approach that I, that I will use in, in dealing with creditors and advocating with, with creditors. Um, and I follow the guidelines issued by the, the Salvation Army. Around tips in communicating with, with lenders, there's three that comes to mind uh, for me. Number one is, once I've sent an authority form off to the bank or the creditor, I will usually uh, give them a call uh, to find out all information about the account, such as if it's a credit card, what interest rate has is being charged, um, is the client over the limit, have they sought hardship or has hardship been provided before, and also um, how many years has the client had a credit card? You know, is it six months or is it 16 years? Because that, that comes into the equation as well. Um, secondly, when negotiating with, with creditors, instead of saying, I would like to have this three months here or capitalization of, of the arrears, sometimes I go to the creditor and say, okay, my client is in financial hardship. What support can you provide them? So I put the onus on the financial institution to come up with ideas of support. And then I can gauge um, where we're heading with this. And I, I can gauge also, does it fit in with what we uh, had planned in the first place? So absolutely, you should ask that question. The last thing is I, I call them first and have a conversation and I get an agreement in principle. And then I'll provide them the information in writing and I ask for a response in, in writing. So at every arrangement or agreement, um, it has to be in written format. I like that you highlighted the importance of getting the agreements in writing, uh, creating a solid paper trail that holds all parties accountable. Now, all the most common advocacy financial counsellors do is with major banks and other creditors. I think it'd be so helpful if you could step us through the process that you might follow in advocating with a creditor. Once I establish I'm going to advocate on behalf of the client, I send the authority form into the creditor and I may or may not um, follow that up with a telephone conversation to find out uh, some additional information. When we've worked out a strategy with the client on how we're going to get out of financial hardship, uh, then I'll put a letter together uh, to the creditor. And in that letter, it outlines the current situation, 
and also what our proposal is. And that could be we're looking for three months worth of non-payments or six months worth of non-payments, or it could be a reduction in interest rates, or it could be capitalization of arrears. Um, but I put that in writing and I also provide supporting information such as a completed budget, uh, proof of income and any other supporting documentation that's warranted at, at that time. From that, I'll usually receive a, a, a call from the creditor. They don't usually respond in writing to my request. I usually get a call and then it's, you know, discussing the, the application. And if they have any additional requirements, we will go through it at that stage and we'll discuss whether that's a reasonable request or not. The complexity can vary from, from creditor to creditor. It's depending on, on, on what, you're, um, what you're looking for over what period in time and, and what product specific you're dealing with. Advocacy can involve making reference to a law, a regulation, a guideline to strengthen your argument. I'm wondering, Noel, how do you ensure that you're staying within your boundaries as a financial counsellor while still seeking that best outcome for the client? I always work within our um, practice standards of the agency and we also have the Financial Counselling Australia Code of Ethics as a guide. Realistically, I've never quoted or made a reference to the Credit Act when I'm negotiating with a creditor. It's just not my style. We're dealing with hardship departments. You know, I outline in plain English what the issues are, and I look for outcomes based on the terms and conditions of that credit contract and what financial hardship provisions are provided. I just like to keep it plain and simple. What steps might you take when your first attempts at advocating and negotiating aren't successful? Do you attempt uh, to raise disputes with the organisation's internal dispute resolution? We call that IDR often. Uh, and failing that, do you take the matter further to external dispute resolution or EDR? If a hardship claim is is rejected, I, I usually go back and and just find out why. And it's it's a conversation of well, why has this claim been rejected? It may well be outside their discretion limits, but I ask them to review their decision, and I I do ask for the outcome to be sent to me in writing. So from that, then I have the opportunity, if it's, if it's declined further from that, I have the opportunity of going IDR and I'll give the bank every opportunity to resolve the situation before I would go EDR. In 99% of the cases, IDR usually resolves the um, issue. While we often hear the success stories and they're celebrated, I'm wondering, Noel, if you could share a time when your attempt at advocating for a client wasn't successful or perhaps it had unintended negative outcomes. And what did you learn from that process? I've been a financial counsellor for about 12 months and the client came to see me with a statement of claim. My client was a, a, a tradesperson 
and the statement of claim was from um, one of the local building providers. I think the amount was around $12,000. All in all, my client had debts of around $18,000. So we contacted uh, Financial Rights and they assisted in completing a motion to pay by installments. We sent it in and the um, creditor rejected it. The creditor was not happy with the payment arrangement. It was going to take too long. He wanted his money up front. So from that, I, I contacted the creditor directly. And um, what I learned from that is that it, the, the relationship had soured. It was very personal now. My client had promised to pay off his debts over a two-year period. And he promised on various occasions and and the creditor kept providing him credit. I never factored in the personal angst it had caused um, the creditor. And um, clearly it had reached a stage now where he wasn't prepared to to accept any payment arrangement and he would um, take the next step in the process. The end result of this case was that my client uh, decided to go bankrupt uh, himself. So he controlled the process. Noel, I know you're full of stories uh, of client advocacy. I'm wondering if you could just share one, uh, perhaps, of your most memorable circumstance advocating on a client's behalf. And, yeah, let us know why you chose that particular one. Well, my most memorable um, case was over $300. The situation was that a client came to see me, her partner had passed away and she had um, a number of debts that we were dealing with quite easily. But it came to light that her partner had put a deposit on a car part with the local car dealer and he had paid a deposit of $300 which was part payment of the overall job. So I contacted, had authority form signed, I contacted the uh, car yard and um, asked for a refund. And um, actually, they, um, they initially said they would refund. And then over the period of the next six weeks, I just, I just got the run around, going from one person to another. And eventually they came back and said, no, you know, we're not going to refund. This has been an expense. We've had to purchase a part and it's here now. So to overcome that, this, I, I went to the head office of the, uh, the car manufacturer in Sydney and um, I lodged a complaint. And then I was contacted uh, the following day saying, yep, we'll refund the funds. And... I followed it up two weeks later and the funds hadn't been refunded. So instead of contacting the local dealer to see what had happened, I contacted the head office in Sydney again and raised another dispute. And the, um, the money was refunded within 24 hours. What, why did I choose this one? Well, to me, it was a no-brainer. You'd give the money back. And uh, they were just being unre- totally unreasonable in not refunding that money. 
and my client who had lost her partner, it was just, you know, every dollar counts, but it was, there was no need to take that approach. And finally, Noel, what three tips would you give new financial counsellors in regards to individual advocacy? Before you start advocating, get all the facts, you know, and have a plan in place. And on that, don't be afraid to have a difficult conversation with your client. If there's no light at the end of the tunnel, what's the point in advocating? Because all we're doing is we're kicking the can down the road. We're prolonging the uh, inevitable. So don't be afraid to have difficult conversations. Two, instead of going to the creditor and saying, oh, I'm looking for three months here or six months there or a reduced payment plan, go to the creditor and ask, you know, what support can you, can you offer? Because the levels of support available will vary from time to time. So I think it's beneficial to ask that question and put the onus on the creditor. And last but not least, the third point is, you know, we deal, our clients will come and go. We deal with our creditors day in, day out. So be professional and keep the relationship with our creditors at a business level. What great tips. Uh, If I could summarise those three pieces of null gold. Firstly, get all the facts and don't be afraid to have difficult conversations with the client. Number two, ask the creditor what support they can offer. And thirdly, maintain a professional relationship with those creditors at all times. Noel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you share with us. And I'm sure that your wisdom will prove useful for new financial counsellors navigating this tricky but vitally important area of practice. Thanks for helping to shine the spotlight on advocacy. Now, no one know you love podcasts about golf, but I'm hoping that the Eva Burroughs College podcast will now become your new favourite. Thanks again. <laughs>